Episode 73 of the Pilot to Pilot podcast takes off now. Okay, my name is Harry Stewart. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel, United States Air Force, retired. Today's episode is brought to you by the Four Flight Frequent Flyer Sweepstakes. It's extremely easy to file a four flight, and every time you file and activate a flight plan, you're automatically entered when prizes such as an iPad, subscription, Century, four flight swag, and much more. Head over to fourflight.com backslash sweepstakes for more information and start filing with four flight today. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode features Tuskegee Airman Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. Now, we could go on and on and on and talk about Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart forever, but I just want him to speak for himself. He has a very powerful story, the things that he had to go through and the adversity he had to face in becoming a pilot. And even after World War II and after the Air Force Reserves, how he wasn't able to be a pilot, the airlines wouldn't hire him because of the color of his skin. He has faced adversity his whole life, his whole career, and it's just a, a very, very powerful story. Avenation, if you enjoy this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Patreon. Patreon is where you can support the podcast, pilottopilot.com slash Patreon. Special shout out to Jordan Martin. Jordan Martin is our Patreon of the week. So if you want to be the patron of the week, please check out our Patreon page. If you want to find us on social media, check us out on all social media tags with Pilot the Pilot. And if you want to leave a review, like I said earlier, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Avenation, I don't want to keep you any longer. Please enjoy this episode with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, thank you for coming on the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you. No problem. I'm excited to have you on today. And the first question I asked everyone is, why aviation? What was the original inspiration for you to get involved with aviation? Well, I guess it was the uh, environment at the time, time there. Uh, I was born in Newport News, Virginia, and not too far away from the uh, uh, Air Force Base or Air Corps Base there at the time, uh, uh, Langley Field. Uh, my parents tell me that they used to put me out in the crib and the planes would fly over and I'd crane my neck looking at the planes <laughs> and sort of coo at them as they're going by. Uh, later on, the, uh, we, the family moved to New York. That was when I was about five years old to Queens. And uh, we lived not far from a uh, airport by the name of North Beach Airport in Queens which uh, now is better known as LaGuardia Airport. Oh, wow. But as a teenager, I used to walk over and just watch the planes take off and uh, sort of fantasize about my being a pilot and flying the planes. Uh, at that time, uh, North Beach Airport uh, was a uh, both a, a military and civilian field. And they had aircraft like the Martin B-10 and that thing flying <laughs> around the field at that time. And yeah. Uh, then around the time uh, World War II was uh, rearing its head there, I think they had some P-39s, which was, you know, I guess they were the state-of-the-art fighters at the time there. That was around 1939, 1940, 19, yeah, around 1940. And uh, I used to see them flying overhead and flying around. And, of course, even before that time, in the 30s there, I used to see the planes coming in from uh, different parts of the world, like the uh, uh, DOX, that was the uh, 
German Dornier, mm-hmm. 12-engine aircraft. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, 12 engines. And, uh, oh, what else was there? There were, of course, the Pan Am Clippers used to take off from Flushing Bay. And uh, I got a chance to see quite a few of those aircraft. And, of course, that was the day of the dirigibles also. I saw the Akron go overhead. Uh, yeah. I saw the von Hindenburg and uh, I saw the Shenandoah, all of those dirigibles at the time there. But uh, uh, they didn't last, you know. They had no. uh, some problems. And, Just a little bit, right? Yeah, that's right. What was it about aviation that made you crane your neck that kind of sparked your interest when you were a young kid? Well, you know, it was something that was new. It was different. And the idea of separating yourself from the earth, you know, and and doing something different than uh, most other people weren't doing at the time there. And the idea and being in uh, another venue, another uh, perspective as far as the earth is concerned. Uh, Also, you know, at that time, there were uh, movies that were coming out, people like uh, James Cagney and Pat O'Brien and uh, those actors a uh, long time ago who were playing the roles of uh, great fighter pilots. And, you know, I looked at those, you know, and I said, I want to be a hero like those guys. Yeah. And uh, uh, Dawn Patrol and uh, uh, a lot of those movies like that. I think they, they affected a lot of kids my age at the time there. And, of course, uh, we, we had little aero clubs among us kids and uh we used to build these uh, balsa wood tissue mm-hmm. uh, airplanes, and we used to fly them, and we used to be in competition with one another, and uh, that was the thing at the time. And, of course, the magazines like Flying Aces yeah. uh, that we were reading at the time there, everything was about this newfangled thing, you know, this uh, new uh, uh, airplane thing, you know, and uh, it, 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 it just grabbed my fascination. Wiley Post, I think, of, and, uh, uh, Amelia Earhart. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, some of these German pilots. I think there was a fellow named uh, Acrobatic Pilot by the name of Fritz Wendell. I remember his name. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was exciting times as far as uh, uh, aircraft. It was. That, aviation yeah. was new. It was kind of uh, not too far away from the first flight and it was kind of an exciting time planes are getting built very fast and very different types of airplanes and it was just really awesome that's right what was uh what was the path for you so say like before world war ii you really knew you liked aviation you wanted to get into aviation was there a path for you to get into aviation because i know it was different times back then and i don't know what it would have looked like before world war ii for you to have a, a career or even fly an airplane well, that was, you know, uh, pretty much impossible at the time. Yeah. And the reason being uh, is that uh, I I was not really acquainted with reality at the time. The mm-hmm. reality being that uh, being an African-American is that there was a limited opportunity for me to uh, get training and get into the field of aviation, much less uh, seek employment uh, within the field of aviation, especially uh, as a pilot, uh, even in the uh, Air Corps at the time there, where a lot of people, uh, a lot of youngsters got their wings, is uh, the Air Corps did not accept uh, African-Americans as uh, pilot uh, trainees. And uh, it wasn't until um, oh, a few months before 
World War II came along about six months before World War II that the uh, Air, Air Corps uh, relented and says, yes, we'll, we'll go ahead and train uh, uh, African-Americans as, uh, as pilots, uh, specifically as uh, pursuit pilots or fighter pilots. However, it must be done on a, uh, uh, on a segregated basis. So as a result, you know, uh, they built a field, and uh, I hadn't gone to the service yet, but uh, uh, they built a field down near the town of Tuskegee, mm-hmm. Alabama, and not far from uh, a school down there built by Booker T. Washington called Tuskegee uh, uh, Institute, Tuskegee University, Tuskegee College. But uh, anyway, they built this field specifically for the training of uh, African-American youngsters uh, uh, to become uh, fighter pilots. Uh, I went into the service, and I guess it was around, uh, it was March of 1943, and I had taken the exam uh, down in New York City for uh, uh, pilot training, and uh, I was accepted. And... uh, uh, I was then sent down to Keesler Field, uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, just for indoctrination mm-hmm. uh, into the military. And uh, I was there for one month. And uh, from there on, uh, I, I was sent up to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, where my time was split between a student at the university at the Tuskegee there and uh, out at the airfield as a uh, as a student uh, pilot yeah uh, fi- finally getting my wings uh, out at the uh, air base there and uh, uh, then after some more training in uh, fighter aircraft uh, was sent overseas but the uh, the experience down at Tuskegee was just a just a wonderful experience for a young kid like myself I bet. getting an opportunity that I could have never paid for at the time there it was only through the uh, consequences of the wartime yeah. situation there that I was able to go ahead and and take advantage of uh, of that opportunity. What um so what was the original reasoning why the the military wouldn't let African American pilots be or African Americans be pilots? What was the reason that they would tell you when you would if someone wanted to go to apply or someone really wanted to do that? Uh, they would say, I think the word that they used or the uh, uh, rationale that they use is that. Uh, we did not have uh, uh, integrated uh, uh, services, okay. and there was no integrated, uh, or there was no service uh, that uh, 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 was available to African Americans because uh, there was no integration at the time. There was strict segregation, and uh, uh, until that time, that they relented and said, "Well." We will build an airfield, and we will go ahead and train the African American uh, students uh, as uh, uh, as pilots. But uh, it must be done on a segregated basis. So they they were pretty straightforward. Uh, they didn't try to delude me or anything like that. They said, "Well, you know, uh, we don't have integration, so therefore uh, we will not train uh, uh, African Americans at this time until they relented and." Uh, then it was, uh, as I said, on strictly on a segregated basis. However, uh, it had its uh, uh, ironies because, you know, there was just no way they could go ahead and have something as large as a uh, 
a training base there and uh, not have some form of uh, of, of integration. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, instructor pilots they were all white. Yeah, uh, that was in uh, uh, basic uh, and advanced there. So you know, there's, there's I'm in the same plane with the. Uh, with the uh, white instructor pilots there. And, I was about to say, uh, how did they expect you to get trained in aircraft <laughs> and not exactly. be integrated? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you know, that that type of thing went all the way through, even as far as uh, housing accommodations and all of those things there. There are times that they had to bend what they considered the rules there in order mm-hmm. to uh, uh, function. And uh, even up until the time that we went overseas, the the greatest irony being that uh, when we as a group uh, flying P-51s escorting escorting the uh, bomber crews uh, in the 15th Air Force, and they were the crews on B-17s and uh, B-24s, the crews being all white and the uh, escort fighters being all black. <laughs> so that was a, an irony there. Absolutely. Know? That is yeah. definitely an irony. It's like, hello, integration. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, that's right. that's amazing. That's uh, it's quite a different time than what it is now. And it certainly, certainly was. What was the environment like once they started the? I know that technically, like we said, it was segregated, but obviously there was a little bit of integration. What was that environment like? Was it hostile? Were they accepting, or was it kind of standoffish? I, uh, you know, it was like a. Uh, 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 eight to five type of thing, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, from eight o'clock until five o'clock, you know, you're integrated and you're uh, you're working all together doing something, and the five o'clock whistle blows, and uh, you go your way and they go their way, yeah. and uh, and uh, that was it. What about the instructors when you were being trained? Did they expect that you guys would be able to pass, or were they kind of like thinking that this is going to be a failed? kind of uh, an idea that would never come to fruition that might, might not even work? I think it was a, a mixture there. I think that, you know, there were some instructors who felt the latter, you know, that mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't work. You know, it was an experiment that was uh, do, uh, either designed or uh, uh, built to fail. And uh, others who felt, I think, uh, that, uh, you know, they were rooting uh, that, uh, yeah, I think these guys should have just as much of a chance as uh, anyone else. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, you know, asked the question uh, from some of the uh, instructors uh, later on when I came back from overseas, uh, you know, what made you come to Tuskegee as an instructor? I'm sure that you had to uh, volunteer uh, not only as far as an instructor was concerned, but volunteered to go to a uh, uh, all black base to go ahead and train uh, African Americans to fly. And uh, I think some of them were candid with me and said, "Well, you know, it was near my home, and uh, you know, it was a good opportunity for me to go ahead and be near my home and my girlfriend or my wife mm-hmm. or my parents, that type of thing." And uh, others and uh, they they still some of those still held on fast to their uh, uh, ethnic or uh, or their uh, social beliefs as far as integration yeah. uh, you know segregation was concerned but then there were others who were you know 
uh, probably from the north and probably from a, a different environment who felt as though, gee whiz, I'd, I'd like to be part of this experiment and I'd like to see it work and I'd like to go down in history as knowing that I uh, contributed to it. So it was a mixture. Absolutely. I mean, obviously you rose at a time when all abled bodies were needed for help, you know? It's like, we needed everyone for the war. We needed everyone, doesn't matter, skin color, whatever. It's like, get on board, get in the plane, learn to fly, let's go. It's like, we got a war to win. We got a a machine to stop. So it was definitely needed. Um, Do you think that this would have happened, maybe not as fast, but... How, I mean, I don't know how to want to word this, but how how far off do you think this was where they would have accepted African-American pilots if it wasn't for the pressure of the war? Uh, that's, you know, really hard to say. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the war really accelerated it, you know, no question about it. And uh, that's just uh, hard for me to answer because uh, I, I, I certainly don't think it would have happened when it did happen, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, it, it would have been much... Uh, much later, but you know, with I, I guess with the civil rights movement, it had it occurred, you know, in the '60s and that type of thing, as 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 it did occur there, that uh, there would have been still a push for uh, uh, equal rights and equal opportunity there, and uh, I I believe it would have I re- believe it would have come about yeah. without the war, but would have been a long time coming. Yeah. What was the, what did your family react to when you were like, mom, dad, you know, I'm, I'm finally going to do it. I'm going to go be a pilot. I've been selected. I'm going to Tuskegee to do this. What was their reaction for it? Well, uh, you know, because dad, you know, he was sort of gung ho and felt as though, you know, yeah, this is the right thing for you to do, you know, and, uh, for your country and that type of thing. Mom being the regular mom there, you know, <laughs> Yeah, right. no, my baby's going to my, war. <laughs> I don't want my baby that's yeah. going to war, you know. But uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I think that the the, the big thing is uh, I, I know mom, uh, you know, they kept me protected quite a bit from uh, uh, not only the uh, hostilities of uh, discrimination and, and that type of thing, uh, they, we were living in New York, as I said, and mm-hmm. it was a very uh, progressive area compared to some other parts of the country there. Right? Uh, everything was integrated. We lived in an integrated neighborhood. Uh, uh, I went to school with a, you know, a mixture of kids of uh, all races there. I guess it was a predominantly Italian neighborhood I lived in, and uh, we all enjoyed the company of one another and visited one another's house uh, we all went to the movies together. We, uh, uh, any restaurants or anything like that, uh, there's a complete uh, integration as far as that's concerned. So uh, the hostilities of the South and the hostilities uh, uh, in the service was uh, something new to me, but my, my parents tried to you know, warn me of that. For instance, uh, they said that when you, when you head South, and uh, you cross what they call the Mason-Dixon line, which was an imaginary line that uh, ran through a number of states in the south there, including Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, below that line there, there was institutional uh, segregation. And uh, they tried to tell me uh, not what it was like, but uh, just to be very, very careful. And, uh, you know, what I experienced was... Uh, 
when uh, I was headed down to Biloxi, Mississippi from New York. I was on the train with uh, some uh, kids from the neighborhood. They were uh, neighbors of mine, hence they were uh, of different races. Mostly of them were were white there. But when we got to Washington, D.C., the conductor came back to where we were all sitting and pointed to me and said, you'll have to go up to the front car. That's the car for colored people. And uh, the uh, kids that were with me says, oh, that's okay, Harry, we'll go up with you. And the conductor said, no, no, you won't. Uh, you stay back here. And uh, we. this is where we have the segregated policy, the Jim Crow policy, and the colored people sitting at first coach up front there and the rest of the white people sit back here. So uh, it, it was not a shock to me because my parents had warned me that uh, this would happen. And of course, my eye was on the prize and the prize being I wanted my wings and I wasn't going to uh, interrupt, or, uh, you know, for the for the sake of uh, a principal or something like that, uh, give up my chance to uh, get my wings there. Yeah, so you you had your eye on the goal. You weren't going to let any trivial thing come up or any kind of exactly anyone let that knock you off your path. It's like I'm coming to be a pilot. I'm doing this. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's awesome. What was so obviously you're on the train. You're going there. What was the their time in Biloxi like? Was it very similar to the Washington D.C. experience, or did because I know when yeah. you go to training, there has to be some kind of camaraderie that is created by everyone involved because you're all going through yeah, the same thing together. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely, you know, uh, segregated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with a segregated group, and in fact, the group that I was with was uh, destined to go to. Uh, uh, Tuskegee. They were all okay. uh, going to the uh, what they call the college training detachment, and that was uh, specifically designed. And it was no different than the rest of the Air Corps. There, it was specific, specifically designed for those kids that uh, did not have a uh, college education. And by sending them to a university, and in my case, they, uh, or our case, they sent us to a Tuskegee Institute for six months for intensive uh, training uh, uh, in uh, physics, uh, mathematics, chemistry, and uh, uh, different subjects like that. So that once we went over to the base and started our flying there, that we would have an easier time in uh, uh, acclimating or interpreting the uh, uh, subject matter that uh, we were going to uh, uh, be exposed to. Was did white pilots have to do the similar training before they went to go for yes. get their wings? Okay. Yes. 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 So that yes. once you were in Biloxi and you were, I guess my question is: Were you given every single opportunity and chance to be the best pilot that you could possibly be, or were there some differences between the white and African American pilots? Well, uh, as I said, we were completely uh, segregated uh, down in Biloxi, and it was strictly a uh, uh, a base. And the time that we spent there, which was one month, to uh, acclimate us yeah. to the military. So there, they were teaching us things like you know how to use a gas mask, how to uh, wear your uniform in a proper manner. Yeah. And, uh, uh, get your shots that you needed as far as uh, the uh, Air Force uh, shots were concerned and uh, uh, all of those type of things. And uh, uh, I didn't start the uh, any type of training or 
or anything associated mm-hmm. with uh, the uh, pre-aviation training that I would do until we got to uh, uh, Tuskegee. Okay, so talk a little about that. What was the training like? What was it showing up in Tuskegee, seeing that that airport, the air, the the base, and just knowing that you're getting ready to go do the dream that you had as a child and go fly? Yeah, well, they uh, they had, of course, you know, the the school like other colleges throughout the United States. I'm talking about white colleges. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, had a contract with the uh, uh, Army uh, Air Corps to. Uh, Train to give pre-aviation training to the uh, 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 these fledgling pilots. There, they call them pre-aviation uh, cadets, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that's what we did. And uh, everything was associated with uh, what we needed to to learn in order to uh, make our, our transition uh, into the flying uh, regiment as. Uh, as easy as possible. So uh, the nice thing about it, it was like I was being sent away to uh, uh, as a young kid to college. And uh, I lived, you know, on the uh, campus there. And this was the same as throughout the United States uh, with uh, other kids, regardless of their uh, race, uh, being on a college campus like that. And uh, six months, and it was just really... Uh, <laughs> Really, I guess you couldn't call it the uh, rigors of war and that type of thing. Because, yeah. you know, we we had the weekend dances we could go to <laughs> with the pretty girls on the campus there. Yeah. And you know, it was it was just like being uh, uh, going away uh, to college. Uh, the rigors really didn't start until we uh, got over to the uh, air base, which was six months after after the college there. Okay. And there we started, uh, of course, pre-flight, which again, uh, sort of uh, tunes you up for the, uh, both the physical and mental rigors of, uh, of flying there. Yeah. Uh, that takes place for two and a half months. And then the dream comes true when uh, you go to uh, primary flying, which is the first uh, taste of flying that you get. I had never been in an aircraft before. So oh my gosh, that's crazy. Was, wow. <laughs> what airplane? You know, yeah, I flew the uh, PT-19, which was a little different than uh, uh, most of the uh, uh, youngsters who came along before that and after that. Most of them were flying the PT-17 cadet bi-wing yeah. uh, aircraft, but the uh, what had happened was that a lot throughout the country, uh, they were having a lot of accidents, especially ground loops and these uh, 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 PT-17s. And uh, somebody talked the Air Corps into purchasing a new plane, the Cornell, which was a uh, all-plywood, uh, low-wing, two-seat uh, in tandem uh, inverted Ranger engine. I think it was around 200 or 250 horsepower. Dang. But the big feature about it is it had a very wide landing gear on it, and it was uh, <clears throat> almost impossible to ground loop. Yeah. So uh, they thought that uh, this would be an answer to that problem of ground looping, but it wasn't. <laughs> uh, we, 
<laughs> we only flew that plane for maybe about six months. Oh, no. And uh, they went back to the PT-17. And what would happen, they, they had what was known as stages. And in the stages, you know, they, they, they put up a, uh, uh, a high rope, uh, like a, uh, uh, like a high jump or like a pole vaulter would use. Yeah. And, uh, uh, the idea would be to fly as close to that, uh, uh rope, uh, as possible in landing and landing, uh, within a shortest distance you can, uh, uh, behind that rope or in front of that rope, whatever you want to call it. But what was happening is the, the pilots were coming in and they were stalling too high in the air and they'd pancake in yeah. on the uh, ground there and the oleo struts would come up through the wings. Oh, there. no. So that was, oh, yeah, my gosh. That's what happened. So <laughs> that was the end of that uh, experiment. As yeah, far as that the, doesn't work too well. <laughs> didn't work too well. Yeah, so they fixed one thing, and then they they had another issue coming up exactly. with that plane. Yeah, but in my case, I got I got through with that okay. I got through. You know, they give you twenty hour checks uh, that you have to uh, check your proficiency to see if they felt as though you uh, merit going on. And uh, they have the twenty hour check, forty hour check, and sixty hour check, and then you move on to the next phase of flying, which was uh, basic. And the basic flying, I, I, I went to an all-metal uh, fixed landing gear, uh, uh, enclosed canopy, seated in tandem, low wing, 450 uh, horsepower, uh, radial engine, Pratt & Whitney. And uh, there you, uh, uh, the, the, the instruments were a little more sophisticated. The flying was a little more sophisticated. And, it uh, centered a lot on uh, uh, instruments, uh, instrument flying, and uh, uh, other precision type of flying, uh, formation, of course, and uh, uh, aerobatics. And uh, that, again, uh, there were 20-hour proficiency tests there, so uh, I went through the 20-hour check, 40-hour check, and 60-hour check past that. And then you move on to two, uh, advanced, uh, flying or the advanced phase, phase of your training there, which was the 86, North American 86. Yeah. Again, all metal, low wing, however, retractable landing gear, variable pitch, uh, uh propeller, 650 mm-hmm. horsepower. Oh, yeah. Uh, all sorts of <laughs> instruments and yeah. you know it was just it was uh, pretty much uh, uh, on par with a, a fighter plane mm-hmm. so it was your first introduction to really a uh, high speed uh, really complicated um, fighter type uh, aircraft uh, it even had the 30 caliber machine guns there and then the oh, wow. Last phase of the flying there, uh, we went down to uh, Keesler Field, and uh, 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 we did have uh, gunnery training and uh, uh, using the uh, 30 caliber machine guns that they had fixed uh, in the wing there to uh, uh, for targets. And then there's uh, the 20, 40, and 60-hour check again, and if you got past that 60-hour check, you've made it. Oh, you got your wings. And I got my wings at the time, and uh, 
uh, got my second lieutenant bars, 19 years old. No way. And uh, didn't know how to drive a car yet. <laughs> That's amazing. And, uh, 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 of course, kids from New York, you know, this happened to a lot of the kids from New York because you didn't need a car in New York. Yeah. The rapid transit system and, uh, you know, you could go in place you wanted uh, with without a car, with the subways and the ferries and that type of thing. So it wasn't until after I learned to operate the, uh, got my wings, as I said, second lieutenant blog that I learned how to drive a car. That's amazing. Did you ever feel overwhelmed in training at all? Because obviously with no, no kind of, you're the first one doing this. You're the first one. You're kind of the test run. You're kind of like creating history. Like you said earlier, did you ever feel overwhelmed and what kind of the significance of what you're doing in this process? Didn't feel uh, uh, overwhelmed, but uh, uh, felt, you know, the pressure yeah. of, uh, you know, not only wanting to, to see just to succeed, but, you know, having to succeed mm -hmm. and uh, uh for the community for myself you know and that type of thing because yeah. uh we still were and uh, viewed from uh many aspects as uh, stereotypes as far as the uh racial matters were concerned and people who actually believe that well these guys really can't fly they don't have the uh, uh proper attitude they don't have the mental capacity and in some cases, even said physically uh, uh, handicapped as far as that's concerned. But uh, it was all proven to be wrong. You yeah, know? as we'll talk about later when you when you show up and start saving people's lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like exactly. you're welcome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. How many people were selected for the pilot training versus how many yeah. people passed? Uh, in the actual fighter pilot. The uh, cadet corps there, uh, there were, uh, let's see, 932 pilots that graduated from Tuskegee. And of that 932, five were Haitians. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were sent, and no question about it, because of the uh, uh, color of the uh, Haitians there and being a, a black nation there, they probably felt as though they would stand a better chance in training at Tuskegee mm -hmm. along with other uh, African-American uh, uh, students that were training there. So uh, anyway, there were 532. However, uh, the Army at that time uh, uh, had uh, a couple of uh, artillery uh, units and with these artillery units, they had these uh, uh, aircraft spotters, and they need to train these pilots to fly, uh, uh, to spot the uh, uh, accuracy of the uh, of the artillery that they were using. So they trained them in uh, the Cub. They trained them into the L-4 uh, aircraft, and uh, they trained at Tuskegee also. Their training was not nearly as rigorous as that for the uh, 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 regular uh, fighter pilots that uh, they were training. But uh, with that, if we count all of those uh, uh, that we had there, it turned out to be at 996 pilots that got their wings uh, down at Tuskegee. Uh, of that 996, uh, actually uh, 351 went overseas in the combat 
out of that 351 that went overseas in the combat, uh, 81 lost their lives. Uh, of that uh, 351 also, uh, 35 were uh, shot down and became prisoners of war. And uh, uh, also of that uh, 351, there were seven uh, what they call evades, evade being a, a uh, air crew member or pilot that uh, goes down in enemy territory and manages to elude the <laughs> uh, enemy and get back to his uh, home base. Wow. Uh, but uh, that was seven of them. And you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine a, a black pilot going down in the Central Europe, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and getting back to his home base. You know? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you know? that is amazing. All right. But they had to have the help. They, in, a, in a lot of cases, they, they had the help of the uh, civilians who were uh, pro-democracy. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, they were working with the underground, and uh, they, they helped these uh, pilots uh, get back home without uh, without That's crazy. That's amazing. That's just an amazing story in itself that you could probably talk about for hours and hours and oh, hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. What was... And, uh, oh, sorry, keep going. No, I was going to say that, you know, and each one of them, you know, has an amazing story as to, uh, uh, you know, uh, what they experienced and that type of thing. So, you know, you've got this book, Soaring to Glory, which is my book there, the book by Philip Mandelman about, about me, but I'm just one of uh, those, uh, not even 351, of those 996 uh, they graduated. Each has their own story, you know, uh, their own experience, you know, and some of the experiences are similar, but, you know, some of them are unique to that individual, you know, to each individual. So that, that was it. But uh, speaking about uh, the numbers and going down is uh, I was on a bomber escort mission uh, uh, to uh, Austria. It, uh, it was one of my 43 missions that I flew. And um, what had happened was that uh, intelligence before the briefing that we had before we took off uh, uh, on the mission there was that uh, if there was a situation where uh, the bombers looked like after they delivered their, their bombs there, they, uh, they had safe, safe package passage back to their base there mm -hmm. is you may take, you fighter pilots may take a contingent, a small contingent of your fighters and send them on a fighter sweep while you're up in Austria there. And this is what has happened. I was part of a, a seven uh, pl plane group uh, flying P-51s. Mm -hmm. uh, we were on this fighter swoop, sweep and the fighter sweep being a, uh, 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 going after targets of opportunity. We were up near the Danube, uh, uh, shooting up any barges that might be on the Danube, uh, as far as rolling stock is concerned, uh, shooting up uh, uh, any of the uh, uh, railroads, uh, railroad trains, uh, boxcars, uh, engines there, and uh, as far as rolling stock is concerned, any uh, hostile situations that you see that you might 
uh, engage yourself in. And of course, the big one is uh, engaging uh, enemy fighter aircraft. And the whole idea of this uh, uh, fighter sweep uh, was to try to diminish the uh, war effort uh, that the uh, Axis was uh, putting up at the time there. But anyway, on this particular mission, uh, we were near uh, uh, Wells Airdrome, uh, near uh, Lenz, uh, Austria, not too far from the Danube there. And uh, uh, we ran into a horde of enemy fighters, uh, Focke Wolf 190s. Uh, of the seven of us, three of us got shot down. Oh, my gosh. Uh, one uh, uh, was shot up. He made it back to uh, uh, friendly tori- territory in Yugoslavia and crash-landed there. Uh, the second pilot that got shot down was uh, killed instantly. Uh, the third one, uh, his name was Walter Manning from uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He parachuted. He was plane was shot up pretty badly. He parachuted out, and when he alighted, the uh, a mob was on the ground uh, uh, waiting uh, for him to alight, and uh, uh, they took him to a uh, local jailhouse. Uh, uh, two nights later. Uh, whether it was the same mob or not, I don't know who this mob formed. And uh, uh, they broke into the jailhouse and uh, took Walter out. They beat him up pretty badly, and then uh, uh, they hung him from a oh lamppost. Uh, this was not unique, as this happened to a number of our pilots. And when I say our pilots, I'm talking about those that were flying, uh, not just pilots, but air crew members yeah. flying with the uh, Allied Air Forces, and this being the RAF, the RCAF, the uh, uh, Australian Air Force, uh, uh, what else was there? There was the South African uh, Air Force, and there was depositions taken by uh, people after the war, and uh, these depositions were uh, uh, about these uh, pilot, these air crew members who went down and were executed uh, by the local populace there. Jeez. Uh, not much talked about or anything like that, but when you think about it, you know, you, you understand how that can happen. And of course, we were warned and uh, told that, you know, whenever you're escorting the bombers or, uh, you know, that type of thing, uh, uh, if you happen to go down, get away from uh, that area that has been bombed because the people are incensed and they probably lost loved ones and mm-hmm. that type of things. And, you know, uh, there's no rationale when it comes to, you know, trying to uh, uh, reconcile uh, a loss like that. You're probably looking for revenge. But yeah. anyway, uh, it was interesting because uh, in 19... 19- uh, that that mission that I was on where Manning was lost there, where he was uh, executed, was on uh, uh, April 1st of 1945, which mm-hmm. happened to be Easter Sunday, <laughs> 1945, also April yeah. 1st was April Fool's Day. And uh, it so happens that 
in April Fool's Day and Easter Sunday of uh, 2018, the year 2018, uh, happened to be Easter Sunday also. Oh, wow. April 1st, April Sunday. And uh, I was invited by the uh, Austrian government uh, to uh, come over to a commemoration that they were making for uh, Walter Manning. And with their studies, and I have to, you know, really uh, praise the government very, very, very much, the Austrian government, because, you know, they uh, they were uh, contrite, you know, about the uh, about what had happened and what their citizens had done. And not only that, but I think it took a lot of moral courage for the uh, government to say, yeah, you know, our citizens killed this guy. And uh, we're going to, as uh, the best apology we can make, is to try to commemorate and uh, make an edifice to him there. And uh, that's what they did. They built the uh, uh, edifice on one of the military bases there, and they uh, had his picture that was engraved in uh, uh, in copper and uh, a memorial to him. And they they had a Big to do, you know, and uh, just, just, just absolutely uh, wonderful. So I yeah, did get amazing. back there, and yeah, it is. That's that's a hard um, thing for a community to do, you know, because obviously you need to accept what happened in the past, and I feel like a lot of them would want to not relive that and kind of look past that. But the fact that they right. were able to bring that back up and kind of reopen that wound and be like, "Hey, we did yeah. this. Like this was war. Yeah. We did this. We're sorry. We want to celebrate this and celebrate his life and you and what you've done." So I think that's really amazing that's right. by the government. Uh, so going back to so kind of backtrack a little bit, going back to the story of uh, you flying those missions. There's actually a mission where you were able to shoot down three airplanes, right? That was the same mission. Was but, it the uh, same uh, mission? On the, yeah, on April first. Okay. Actually, actually, I shot down uh, 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 two airplanes, and I was given credit for a uh, third one. And uh, this was the uh, decision of the uh, operations and intelligence. Uh, as far as that third one was concerned, but uh, I had, you know, <clears throat> during World War II, you talk about uh, uh, victories and shooting down aircraft. You know, a lot of pilots uh, never saw the uh, plane, uh, enemy plane that shot them down. Yeah. And, uh, and that's one of the things that you wanted to keep, you know, a real swiveled neck, you know, so you can uh, look around and see in all directions there because they could be coming at you from any directions there and you know, if you're not looking at that direction at the time there that all it takes is just you know one slug and that's that's it you know but uh, <clears throat> anyway I, I don't think these two guys they were uh, sort of flying wing to wing uh, in a uh, two ship tack there and uh, uh, I, I got behind them and I, I don't think they saw me uh, I, I hit the uh, uh, first plane there, saw pieces coming off, and uh, the third one realized, I mean, the second one realized what was going on and started pulling uh, in a tight turn to the right, but uh, I anticipated that, and uh, I got a deflection uh, inside of him there, and uh, pieces came off of his plane. Those were the two, and uh, at that time, I thought I saw some traces come by 
And uh, I, I look back, and here is this FW on my tail. Jeez. And he had me dead to right. I, 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 I knew I was gone because he was just in the perfect position, and, uh, you know, that, that was it. But uh, I don't know. I panicked, and uh, uh, I, I did the split S, and uh, I, I guess I was at maybe <clears throat> three or 4,000 feet, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, Dove for the ground, trying to elude this guy there, and uh, uh, I, I started pulling in a, a very, very tight turn, very, very close to the ground, as tight as I could. And uh, he was trying to get in, evidently get inside of me there, and over-controlled. And as a result, he snapped over-controlled and went into the ground. Oh my gosh! And uh, the. Uh, the uh, intelligence and the people, uh, uh, 15th Air Force, gave me credit for it, said, well, if he hadn't been chasing you and that type of thing, he wouldn't have gone in. So uh, it's, it's your credit, you know. So that's the three I got. So That's you know, amazing. Got, right. right uh, What's, uh, so I got two questions for that. Well, the first one will be, obviously, it's war. They're your enemy. But at the same point, you know, you are taking a human life. Like, what does that, how, what's the thought process of that? Like, cause I know you have to be excited because you're doing your job. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. But uh, like I said, at the same time, you're, you're, you're taking a human life. So how do you kind of deal with that? Well, I guess I remember when, uh, I, I, I got back to the base. Of course, the, the, the adrenaline probably had just wiped me out, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it's, it's quite a rush. I, I just can't think of uh, uh, a rush that I had had before or after that, uh, maybe in the one or other circumstances. But uh, uh, they gave us uh, what we had when we'd come off of the missions, what they called mission whiskey. I don't know if you've heard of that. <laughs> no. <Explain>. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, intelligence, they, they felt as though the uh, trauma uh, of being up in the air there and uh, the uh, uh, excitement that uh, you can run into. Uh, uh, it would be easier to go ahead and give the uh, person uh, two ounces of whiskey, uh, which uh, uh, hopefully would just sort of calm them down a little bit, and, uh, put them back on a more or less even keel. And that's what I'd, I I got when I came back. I got this mission whiskey that they had. But uh, after the briefing and all of that was over, I you know, went back to the tent and I was sitting on my cot there. And, of course, I was thinking about, you know, what had happened. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking about, you know, these other guys. And I said, that could have been me. And I started thinking about, well, God, him was up. I've got a sister and two brothers, you know, three siblings there. I said. You know, one of those guys might have had three siblings just like me. And uh, I got a uh, mother and father, and I said, one of them probably got a mother and father just like me. And said, you know, they'd be devastated if uh, this had happened to me, that I met my demise like this, you know. And, uh, you know, I started feeling some pangs of guilt and that type of thing. And then I rationalized. I said, well, uh we were fighting under the same circumstances as that he was fighting for his government and I was fighting for my government. Yeah. And uh, he probably believed in what he was doing and I certainly believed in what I was doing. And I just 
you know, chalked it up to that. That was my rationale when I, yeah. I let it go. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be a tough thing to do. And I mean, obviously, like you said, you were both doing what you believed in. And everyone that was involved, obviously, I can't speak on this too well, but I would like to imagine that everyone involved knew the ultimate risk of what was going on. You know, you, yeah. you heard about the stories, you've seen, like you said, you've seen your friends get shot down, you've seen death all around you, you knew that that was an opportunity. So I, yes. I, everyone knew what the risk, the ultimate risk was. That's right. Well, so the second question off that story is, all right, you just shot down these two pilots and then you realize these tracers are going by you. And you said, you pretty much said that was it. You were accepting the fact that (laughs) you were, you were, your fate was up. Uh, What? uh, That's right. How do you think, like, what do you, how do you even get out? How do you even not like just sit there in fear? Like, what, how did you get out of that moment? Well, I didn't sit there in fear. I mean, I reacted. I wasn't paralyzed, Mm -hmm. but you know, I, I, I reacted, uh, and it's a more or less in panic more than anything else. Yeah. But I did, uh, I, I did react in, 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 in favor of myself. Uh, I do remember my, uh, bodily functions. I mean, you know, they left me because I, I, I think, you know, under extreme duress and under extreme life threatening circumstances there, uh, your body, uh, uh, changes and it says, well, all of those little ancillary, all of those little side issues that, uh, I'm taking care of in the body, I'm, I'm dropping them out. The whole thing is survival now. Yeah. And, uh, that's all you're left with. So, you know, your, your, your bladder lets loose and, uh, your, 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 you know, you've, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's real, uh, Real trauma. Your body has so, one objective, and that is to do everything objective. possible to survive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's an amazing story. What 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 was it like when you landed and came back? Because obviously, like we talked a little about the whiskey. What was uh what were your your fellow everyone around you? What did they say? Were they were they praising you with all high fives and everything? Or was it? Yeah. Kind of, well, you know what happened? What happened? What happened? You know, and of course, you know they. They wanted to hear the story, you know, and wanted to find out, you know, what was going on. And, you know, looking at you, of course, to see, you know, how are you taking this? Mm-hmm. What is your reaction, you know? And I, I guess they were vicariously projecting themselves into the story there as to, well, gee, you know, is this what it's like? Is that what yeah. I can expect? Or, you know, that, all that type of thing. What did, uh, when obviously you guys were, you were, you're somewhat segregated from the white pilots, right? Or were you living together with them in, on base? Segregated with them completely. There okay. were no white pilots on the base there. And, uh, maybe, uh, in the whole fighter group that we had there, there might have been, uh, maybe, uh, two or three white officers, uh, that, uh, were with the, uh, group. But uh, as I said, that was the irony of mm-hmm. having it, yeah. uh, you know, but uh, that was it. So, no, we didn't have any of the white pilots there. But uh, I think the pilots, the bomber, the bomber crews, I think they became, after a while, they became very appreciative of uh, the job that we were doing in trying to uh, protect the bombers. I know we had an enviable record. We had the smallest loss of uh, bombers that we escorted than any other fighter group that was uh, over there at the time. There were seven fighter groups in the 15th Air Force. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
the story is that uh, uh, the uh, Bonon crews uh, were uh, felt comfortable in seeing us escort them because awesome. they felt as though that uh, uh, you got you the know, job paramount done. Yeah, I get, we we get the job done. You know, and we weren't going to go and arbitrarily leave them or something like that. Is that we were going to stick right with them right to the end. Yeah. And that's kind of what we talked about, the irony, too, of how maybe some people thought that you you couldn't do this or you shouldn't do this. And then here you are, maybe those same people, you are now saving their life and protecting yep. them and they want you yeah. next to you. So Exactly. Yeah. And I guess the, and I, I think it's talked about in the book there, I think one of the uh, most dramatic occasions was uh, Christmas of 1944. And uh, the weather closed in uh, on the uh, bombers <clears throat> coming back from their mission there. And uh, I think it was 25 of the bombers had to be diverted to our field. Wow. And uh, that's a, a crew of uh, 10 on each bomber. So that's, uh, I guess, uh, what is that, 250 uh, uh, crew members there? Yeah. And they lived with us uh, for the Christmas holidays, <laughs> from uh, Christmas through uh, New Year's, and uh, living in the same tents with us, and eating the same food, and having the same parties, and drinking the same whiskey, and uh, got to be, you know, extremely friendly, you know, and uh, I'm sure it changed the attitudes of, uh, you know, many people. Yeah, uh, that uh, uh, were in in the war at the time there, but it's a it's an interesting chapter uh, as far as that's concerned, and uh, uh, that that was that was true uh, integration there, you know, from the heart, you know. Yeah. Anyway, it helped change the whole country. I mean, essentially, it was yeah. it was kind of the one of the the founding parts that led us to where we are today. So, I mean, it's an amazing well, story. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I, I, I guess it takes me uh, skip ahead uh, a few years there and, uh, to 1949, and uh, General Hoyt Vandenberg was the chief of staff of the United States Air Force at the time, but uh, he wanted to resurrect a uh, game that was uh, in force prior to World War II, and that was the fighter gunnery meet competitions that uh, the different fighter groups would have. They would send their uh, top fighter pilots, maybe three top fighter pilots, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, go into uh, uh, competition with uh, uh, each other, uh, within the, each of the groups there, and uh, uh, the top winners would turn out to be what the comparable to what the Navy calls now a top gun. Yeah. And uh, Hoyt Vandenberg wanted to resurrect that. And uh, uh, this would be the first fighter gunnery meet that uh, uh, was held uh, uh, since uh, <clears throat> World War II or since the inception of the United States Air Force as an entity rather than the United States Air Corps which was under the Army at the time. Okay. But anyway, uh, they selected uh, three pilots from, uh, from uh, each group, 
and uh, uh, they met out at uh, Las Vegas Air Force Base, now known as Nellis Air Force Base. And uh, that was the, they used uh, as a hop-off point for going out into the desert there for their uh, uh, for their competition. And the competition was uh, based on six events there. Uh, gunnery at, uh, at uh, aerial gunnery at 20,000 feet, aerial gunnery at 10,000 feet, uh, rocketry, uh, skip bombing, uh, dive bombing, and panel gunnery. And the events took place over a period of six days. Uh, there were 12 fighter groups uh, competing against one another, uh, three members in each group. Uh, uh, of that 12, they decided to break the group up into what they called a jet class and the piston mm-hmm. or propeller-driven class. So actually... Five of the propeller driven groups were competing against one another, and seven of the jet class were competing against one another. But anyway, to make a long story short, is uh, at the end of the ten days of competition there, the uh, uh, Tuskegee Airmen, what I call the Tuskegee Airmen, the black pilots, they won that first. Contest, the first Top Gun okay. contest that they had. That's awesome. <laughs> so it is awesome. And uh, 30 days after that, well, it was, uh, that took place in May of 1949. And at the end of June of 1949, that was uh, uh, somewhat a little over a month later. Uh, complete integration took place. They uh, disbanded the uh, black uh, base at Lockburn Air Force Base altogether and sent all of its personnel to the four corners of the earth and integrated them completely within the uh, rest of the United States Air Force. And that's where the the true de facto integration uh, began. And... uh, what was that feeling like when you know that it was finally accepted and integration was, was wholly accepted in the military and in aviation or in uh, military aviation? What was that like for you, knowing that you were on the forefront of that? Was that a very proud moment? Well, I'd say it would be it, it, it mixed emotions. Yeah. And, uh, as I should say that uh, uh, it was decreed. And uh, being a decree... Uh, does not necessarily mean that uh, people are accepting this within their hearts. You know? Yes, gotcha. So uh, that's a good point. Uh, as as a result, is that there were diehards who said, "I'll never accept this thing." And uh, uh, among the African American air crew members and personnel, uh, there were those who felt that she uh, uh, was. I don't believe them. I believe this is just the means to go ahead and make life more difficult for me mm-hmm. and to uh, take away what little rights I do have and that mm-hmm. type of thing. But uh, I will say one thing is the uh, Air Force hierarchy, uh, when they decided to do this, they said, we're going all the way with this plan and we're not going to accept uh, any dragging of the feet or anything like that. And uh, they did uh, go on to, uh, you know, implement this and uh, 
you know, let everyone know that uh, this is happening. Uh, if, yeah. if this is happening, yeah. and that if you can't abide with it, get out. Yeah, here's the door. <laughs> here's the door. <laughs> That's what they needed to do, though. I mean, I mean, obviously, like I said, different time. I don't understand that mentality because where we grew up, it's it's not. I don't know. It's just different for me, and I don't know how someone could think, especially when you have the track record of what you had and the the missions of what you guys were able to do and the stories that you're just able to tell me and how well you guys did it, how you, you, you proved everyone that this is possible and that you are no different than anyone else and that you do your job very, very well. And it's just, it's hard to believe that someone could see, even have pages and pages and pages of just what you have done and then they can, still can't accept it. It just blows my mind. I, uh, I use the expression Tuskegee Airmen and uh, uh, l- let me say this for the uh, benefit of the uh, listeners that mm-hmm. the... Uh, uh, named Tuskegee Airmen was an acquired name. Uh, you know, this was all took place within certain groups of, uh, uh, uh black, uh, uh, Air Force and Army Air Corps members, uh, the 332nd Fighter Group, uh, the, uh, 477th Bomb Group, and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, different support, uh, groups and squadrons and that type of thing. And uh, after a war, and uh, somewhere around 1972, a uh, doctor by the name of uh, Francis, uh, uh, John Francis, um, I I forget his first name now, Mm -hmm. but anyway, he wanted to write a book. He did write a book, and he wrote about the experiences of the uh, uh, black uh, Air Corps members uh, in World War II, and for want of a name, He says, well, let's see. They all trained down at Tuskegee, so I'll call them the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm. And that name uh, took effect. It uh, stuck, didn't it? People just just stuck, (laughs) you know, and uh, people use it today, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen. But uh, actually, it was the uh, group designations, military designations that we had. I I, I thought I'd go ahead and throw that in. Yeah, no, it's interesting. People wonder. Uh, what is meant by the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, it's funny to think that it was come up with after the fact. It wasn't kind of uh, an immediate name that was given or just a name that was embraced or created by the Tuskegee Airmen themselves. Right. Uh, there you go. That's exactly. really interesting. Well, uh, So obviously the war is winding down. The war is over. You guys just proved again and again and again that you're able to do this. What was next? I mean, I know in the book and what I read that you were not able to come back and fly for, say, Delta, United, American, or those kind of companies. Is that correct? That is correct. And, of course, when I <clears throat> got out of the service uh, in 1950, uh, it was the same old, same old. I mean, the, the, in, in the civilian life, the... Uh, same problems that existed as as far as the uh, uh, social uh, element in the uh, country was concerned uh, uh, was the same. Uh, uh, nothing had changed. And uh, I say that uh, uh, not just only as far as uh, many jobs and occupations were concerned, but uh, my the fact that I had uh, acquired a skill, and that was as a pilot. Uh, I went and I applied uh, with two airlines, uh, and I was rejected uh, by both of them. And uh, one tried to hide the fact that uh, they had it for advertised for pilots uh, for the airline, but denied 
that uh, they were hiring any at the time. The, the second <coughs> uh, airline, uh, the personnel officer or assistant personnel officer, whoever he was, uh, uh, noticed me and uh, the uh, person that I applied with uh, the employment office uh, uh, alerted him to my being in the office there, and but he came out, and I, <laughs> pardon me, I guess he wanted to to uh, tell me uh, his position and uh, 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 why he, uh, the airline, uh, was not prepared to hire me. And of course, he used the rationale that uh, uh, hiring me would uh, affect the bottom line as far as their profit was concerned. <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, passengers yeah. seeing me walking down the aisle and getting into the cockpit would lose confidence in the airline, and you know that that type of thing. Well, I didn't buy it, but uh, not that at was all. It, you know? yeah. Anyway, that was it. But uh, as time went on, I realized that you know I I, I don't know when I I, I believe that eventually uh, the airlines would uh, accept. Uh, African Americans as mm -hmm. uh, air crew members, but I said that could be a long way off. So I said I better go ahead and get a backup position. So I uh, I went back to school and I uh, went to New York University, got my degree in mechanical engineering, and I uh, I, I went up the uh, route, the vocational route of uh, engineering and. Uh, uh, that's uh, what I retired at. But I was very gratified in uh, things that happened subsequent to that, you know, and I think of the most dramatic situation was uh, a flight that Delta Airlines had. They were taking off, uh, had a crew that was taking off uh, from Hartsfield, uh, uh, Hartsfield uh, Airport. Mm -hmm. In Atlanta, to I guess it was I don't know whether somewhere in Kentucky or Missouri I forget, but anyway, yeah. the uh, if you looked into the uh, cockpit there, you would see two African American uh, crew members, pilot and co-pilot, sitting in the cockpit there. And I guess the most amazing thing, if you took another glance and you look, both of them were female. <laughs> so that's, that is know, amazing that is amazing yeah that know? is amazing right so i once in a while run into some of those female pilots that are flying you know black female pilots that are flying for the airlines also i just got back from oshkosh and of course i see a lot of people there i, yeah. I go there for almost every year and then uh i just came back from uh uh oh god he was uh Anyway, the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, Orlando, Florida. Okay. And uh, Tuskegee Airmen, Inc., uh, which is a uh, organization that was formed by the uh, Tuskegee Airmen after the war, but they were having a uh, conclave down in uh, Orlando there. And I was sitting at the table with uh, three black generals <laughs> that were sitting there. Two of them were female. No way. Yeah, <laughs> That's <totally>. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like we said, different times, right? Different times. Yeah, different That's times. Right. Yep. 
I have a couple. I've I think I have like two two more questions for you. One of them mm-hmm. is about the disappointment of coming back from the war, knowing that you served your country, you served your country very well, you did everything that anyone has ever asked of you, and then you come back. And did you have the expectation that things were going to be different, or did you come back knowing that you're coming back to and that's kind of what America was before you left? Well, I. Uh... I, I I didn't let my expectations run away with me. I, yeah. I didn't do that. And uh, I always felt that if I could just present myself and present my case and uh, people could see me uh, as I, I really am rather than the fiction that they might have in their minds about me or something like that, is that uh, I could prove my case there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, in, in this situation, uh, uh, I, I didn't prove my case, but I still felt as though the case would be proven by somebody someday, and pretty much in the uh, not-too-distant future. It may not be my day, but it would be, you know, the day of uh, uh, kids that uh, that followed you know, in my uh, footsteps there, which uh, actually actually happened. So, yes, it was a disappointment to me, absolutely. I mean, this is what I wanted to be. Uh, this is this is the life I enjoyed, the life up in the air, you know, but uh, uh, it just wasn't my time. But uh, uh, it, it, it really uh, feels good to see that it did happen during my time. And maybe it didn't happen to me, but I'm just as happy to see it happen to uh, to some others. You know? Absolutely, and I will say this: I just um, I just got done talking a couple weeks, maybe last week. I got done talking. He is 24 years old. He's from Jamaica, and he is an airline pilot at Delta Airlines. And I will, How about yeah. And I, I know exactly, right? And I will strongly attribute his success to what you did in the past and that the sacrifices you made and the conversations that you had created because you went into to these interviews and you went in to go show yourself and that had to create a conversation within that airline and that helped yeah. press this to the future. This helped press this to become into fruition later in life and what you did and the sacrifices you met, you made. And I know, like you said, you're disappointed that you weren't able to become that airline pilot, but what you did and the sacrifice you made has led to the future generation. And like I said, a 24-year-old African-American from Jamaica is a Delta Airline pilot. And it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable story, and I can't wait to share it. But it's it's amazing. And I, I thank you for that. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great. Right. And my last question for you, this is, a, this is the last question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I love the Tuskegee Airmen movies. I've liked both of them, the two that I've seen. How accurate I'm are I'm going to answer you right before you yeah. even ask me. Right. I know what you're going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Hollywood. Yeah. And you know, Hollywood, you know, it's, it's a docudrama. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's uh, 5% documentation and uh, <laughs> 95% drama there. So absolutely, uh, a, a lot of it's, you know, it's uh, the, the last one was the red tails. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, Oh, what's his name? Uh, the Star Wars guy. The uh, uh, he, I'm drawing he, a blank too. I know what you're he, talking about. No, that, he, yeah. he he produced Star Wars. Yeah, the producer. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, you know Star Wars. You know it's got a lot of fantasy and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
Uh, that's what he did as far as the uh, the red tails are concerned. Yeah. The byline, the story was just uh, <laughs> ridiculous. You know, but, were you watching uh, the movie? You're like, what? When did that happen? <laughs> exactly. yeah. right. Who? Who's that? But yeah. you know, I will have to say this: is that after those two movies, that was the HBO movie was the first one, the uh-huh. Tuskegee Airmen, and then the second one was the uh, the Red Tails. Yeah. After those two movies, they were shown around the world. Mm-hmm. And then people came out of the woodworks who had said, we, we had never known this to happen. We didn't know that. They were the blacks flying like this during World War II, you know? That's crazy. And uh, I think, the, uh, I think the, the credits and the notoriety that the Tuskegee Airmen got uh, had a lot to do with these films. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would, I would agree. I, I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm young, and when the first movie came out, I, I watched it and I loved it. And but right, I, I'm right. sure I wasn't alone in being finally figuring out like that's how it happened. You know, the, the first one was more accurate, I think. The, was it uh, the Tuskegee Airmen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it was it was more accurate. But uh, the second one, you know, the guy was flying on a mission there, and he looks down and he sees this girl on the balcony, you know. And, uh, <laughs> A love story. All yeah. of a sudden, it's a love interest from, yeah. from the air, you know. That's not how you met your wife? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Like yeah. that would happen. Yeah, that's that's wild. Well, yes. I, I appreciate you coming on, and I appreciate you being very open and answering these questions. And just your story is amazing, and it is one that I'm truly, truly, truly thankful for you to come on and share. And I'm very humbled that you were able to share that with me. Um, I, it's amazing. Like I said earlier, you you paved the way. You paved the way for other pilots Thank to you. do what you wanted to do. And I know that you weren't necessarily able to take your career in aviation to where you wanted it, but you have helped open those doors for so many people and they are internally grateful for you and what you've done. And it's just amazing. And I'm so thankful for you for what you did and how, what you've done for aviation. It's amazing. Well, thank you. And don't forget Philip Handelman, you know, Absolutely. and, and these are both soaring for glory. That's what I was being, that was anyway next, that was yeah, next up. Right. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone wants to buy the book, the book is Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's firsthand account of World War II by Philip Handelman. And it's got some good reviews. It's got 4.8 out of 5 on Goodreads. So I highly recommend getting it. And I was actually sent two books to give away. So we're going to be doing a giveaway hey, of those two books. So I know I'm excited. It's going to be fun. Okay. But I appreciate you coming on, like I said earlier, and uh, I'll keep you updated when this is coming out. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for this and so thankful for you sharing your time. Thank you ever so much. Have a great day. Okay, you do the same. Bye-bye now. Bye. Aviation, that is a wrap of episode number 73 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with everyone you know. The story of Tuskegee Airmen and Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart is just an amazing one and one that just needs to be shared with everyone. I don't want this history to ever die as Tuskegee Airmen played a huge part in World War II. So Aviation, please share this with everyone. Check out our Patreon page. Leave a review. And I look forward to sharing next week's episode with Marlon Days. Marlon is a 24-year-old Jamaican Delta pilot. Yeah, that's right. Mainline Delta pilot. He's the man. Looking forward to sharing that episode. Aviation, have a great day and happy flying.